Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I'm fortunate to be joined once again by Darren Norkett, who has been with us previously on episode 17. Daryl is one of the directors of Lendwell, and he has a long career in banking, previously working at Barclays and Shawbrook, and always gives us fantastic insight from a bank's and lender's perspective. So thank you, Daryl, for joining us today. Pleasure to be here, Rod. I haven't actually listened back to my last appearance on the broadcast, but it was just as lockdown here, I believe, or just as COVID is biting anyway. And um, uh, you could self, Adam Lawrence and I kind of sat around and had a chat about what we thought the future might hold. But I imagine that'd be a, an interesting listen back just to see quite how wrong we were. <laughs> no, it's good. I, I, think, I think there's lots of points in there that you were definitely correct on. Um, and it's, it is interesting to listen back. So I definitely advise going, going to do that when you've got a spare minute. I know you've just had another baby, so congratulations. Um, so you, you probably don't have many spare minutes. So even even a bigger thanks for coming on today. Um, but I guess today what we wanted to talk about was at the moment, inflation is a bit of a buzzword um, that's coming out. I mean, you look on the Google searches, it's become a big factor for businesses. Um, it's one of their biggest concerns at the moment. And when people in property associate uh, think about inflation, they normally associate um, Bank of England interest rate rises and what that would mean for uh, property investors and developers and also the chances of it happening. Um, and really, I wanted to get you on the show today to get the perspective from banks and lenders and go through some of kind of the mechanical issues of what happens with rate rises and how then that um, translates to what happens to mortgages and lending rates as well. So I guess if we can start off, my first sort of question or comment to you would be, when the Bank of England rates were cut last year, um, people expected mortgage rates to decrease. But that, re that wasn't really the case. Um, and some mortgage costs actually went up. So why did that happen? And as a follow-up, if base rates do go up, does that mean all mortgages and lending products will go up? Yes, that's a, that's a really interesting point. So the first sort of summary point I would say to kind of just park out the way is that there's a difference between banks and lenders. So most of the mortgage lending is in buy-to-let mortgages and residential mortgages is delivered by banks in this country, but not all of it. Um, you look at some of the sort of tech challenges that have popped up and they're not, they're not banks, they're, they're lenders. Most of the development finance though, and the bridging and, and things like that is actually delivered by lenders rather than the banks. And depending on whether you're a bank or a lender, the impacts of base rate um, will vary for you. So with lenders, um, it's quite complicated because it might be private money in there that's not sensitive to base rate at all. Um, but there might also be bank funding lines, which are you know volatile to the same impacts that the wider banks would have on their own um, on their own business model. So it's probably best to talk about banks to start off with because they deliver the the lion's share of the mortgage lending in this country. 
So if you think about a loan, a loan is a, a profit and loss statement like any other business. Mm -hmm. so on the top line, you've got income, which is the interest and fees that you receive from delivering that loan product. And then underneath, you've got um, a variety of costs that come with it. So there's a cost of origination. So that might be paying for your, um, your sales force. It might be paying for your branches if you're a high street bank. It might be paying for your brokers in terms of commissions if you're a specialist or a challenger bank. So you've got that cost in there that comes off of the, the income statement. And then there's cost of operations. So you need people to deliver these loans. You need underwriters, you need processes, you need admin staff. And then beyond that, you need people to deliver the, the kind of bits that you might need updating on the mortgage as you go along when you move address and things like this. So there's, a, there's an operational cost to delivering that loan. Cost of keeping and, the lights on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and those two things, they don't change with base rate. So, you know, that's people, premises, you know. Yeah, they Yeah. Then you have um, the cost of, of risk. And so this is an interesting one. So banks will budget in an allocation of their loan income, which is put aside for bad debt effectively or arrears. And when lockdown hit and when COVID hit, all of those assumptions went up because the likelihood of, of default went up, up, the likelihood of issues in the market with affordability, with rental income for landlords, with unemployment and jobs for homeowners, all went up. So cost of risk actually went up at that point. That, no doubt, has gone through um, you know, fairly long re-evaluation processes. Things have panned out and the outlook's a bit clearer now than it was in March last year. But that's sort of where the initial thinking place definitely would have been for pretty much everyone. Um, and then lastly, you have cost of capital, which is where the, the base rate feeds into it. And it, it just depends how the bank is structured. So the high street banks in particular benefit from um, lots of money that they can lend for free because everyone has current accounts. Most current accounts don't pay interest anymore. And a lot of people keep, you know, a, a slush fund or their day to day spending in those current accounts. And when you multiply that by millions of customers, that's a material amount of money that banks can lend. Other banks, so challenger banks in particular, are reliant on savings. So if their savings are base rate linked, and they normally are, um, then base rate goes down, cost of offering a savings account goes down, cost of getting money into the bank goes down, and there's kind of a benefit there. But then behind the scenes, there's lots of swaps that go on between the banks, there's lots of trading on the markets that go on between the banks, and COVID wasn't necessarily helpful for all of that it became a little bit more difficult because there was less certainty and sort of less appetite for, for trading in the market. So you kind of put all those things into a pot and moves in base rate is only one factor of many that then determines what happens to mortgage lending. And as it happens, if you talk about sort of where my main expertise is in kind of buy-to-let and, and commercial and things like that, because of supply and demand, because of competition, rates were pretty much at, at bottom levels anyway. There wasn't much margin left on these loans and the, the kind of cost of finance part of it was a relatively small part of the mix. So there wasn't much room for rates to come down. There wasn't much room for banks to do a lot really, even with base rate coming down because all of their other costs stayed the same. Sure. And just to pick up on a couple of those com comments then, um, so obviously the first bit you did was make the, the differentiation between lenders and banks. What does a bank need to be a bank versus a lender? Is it just the case of getting a banking license or what's, what's, the, what's the main difference there? Yeah, you absolutely need a banking license. You become regulated by the Bank of England effectively. Um, and being a bank means that you're a deposit taking effectively. So you have the license to go out to the market 
ask people to deposit their, their cash with you in exchange for, for interest um, and then lend it. But it comes with a whole host of other implications, um, you know, kind of more bureaucracy required, kind of bigger operational machine required to kind of feed it. Um, and it also comes with what was introduced after the, the credit crunch in 2008, the, the capital and liquidity rules. Yeah. Mean that a certain amount of your loan book has to be held back in, in deposits effectively. So um, for buy to let and most mortgages, it's 35% of the loan amount needs to be held in cash. For development finance, it's sometimes as much as 150%. So it comes with a regulated environment, but you know, also quite a big uh, competitive advantage in terms of buying power of capital, because there's obviously lots of people out there looking for savings accounts. And when interest rates are low, um, the cost of getting that money in is, is relatively cheap. Yeah. And then um, you mentioned kind of, I suppose you, you kind of touched very briefly on talking about credit lines when you were talking about um, uh, private lenders and private money as well, not being affected by the base rate. But surely they are, private money is affected by opportunity cost and almost you'd look at a risk-free rate from that which would be affected to the base rate. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, it depends. It depends on the sort of source of the funds. So um, with the, the non-bank lenders, part of that market is actually served by the banks. Mm -hmm. So the banks might offer someone a, a 50 million pound um, funding line to go and write loans that look a little bit like this here and go and yep. do a loan volume with those. And that's going to have all the same sensitivities that the rest of the bank lending has, because ultimately it's bank money. Um, sometimes it's the pension funds and the hedge funds. Um, and sometimes it can be um, private individuals. Private individuals is obviously always hard to call because it depends on what their own motivations are. They might have a particular preference for property or for, you know, or for a particular sector of the economy. So they like, might, might, like, uh, might like funding hotels or manufacturing or whatever. Um, the, the pension funds is an interesting one because I think where a lot of this boils down to with the non-bank money is just uh, a choice about where the right risk and return is. So a lot of the people involved in that will be looking at the market and they'll be looking at various options for placing that capital. So into property directly could be one, into property via a lender could be another, but also they could go off into the stock market, they could go off into other sectors of, um, of the economy and do other things. So um, I, I guess you know the overall attractiveness of property is one of the things that has underpinned and driven liquidity in our market through the crisis compared to other investment choices that could be made. Yeah. And um, you mentioned kind of the banks uh, at the beginning of COVID, their risk or their cost of risk went up. Where do you think that um, that risk is now in terms of or, or compared to maybe where it was at the beginning of COVID? Let's say it was, a, a, I don't know, eight out of 10 um, in, in March 2020. Where, where do you think it, it is now? So it's a really tough question, that one. Mm. So I think you can only really talk from your own personal experience because every bank, every kind of management team of each bank will have its own view on the world and that will drive the assumptions they make in modelling their, their loans and their loan income and therefore where their pricing can go to. I think sort of where I see it at the moment is that March last year was almost panic, really. You know, kind of unprecedented event. You really don't know how it's going to play out. It looks bad. You know, when someone says the whole economy is shutting down, that sounds really, really bad. And, you know, you can't not but fear for the worst. Yeah. 
where we are now is obviously it, it was bad, but it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And, you know, particularly in property, it's actually been quite a positive year for house prices. Um, and I think probably what's driven that is that um, the government support ma maintained employment effectively. And at the same time, we couldn't spend any money. So there was, you know, you couldn't go on holiday, you couldn't do the big kind of holiday abroad and all this sort of stuff. And you were spending all your time at home. So you've got a bit of extra money in the bank, you've still got your job, and the importance of your house in your life has just gone up fivefold because you spend all your time there, whereas before you didn't. Um, and so all those things have been sort of positives that have driven, driven the property market. But when I sort of think about that, and I actually probably would also sort of peg this on the wider recovery as well to a certain extent, that can't last. So if that, if that analysis is correct and people are effectively spending the money they've accrued over the past kind of 15 months or so, money's going to run out. Yeah, once that money's spent, it's gone. Yeah, and at some point it stops. So I, I mean, I think um, I think that's kind of the biggest sort of risk on the horizon for the wider economic recovery and how quickly that can actually be once the sort of excess cash works its way through the system. But also for property, I don't think the house price rises we've seen are sustainable. Sure. I mean, they're not sustainable, but do you think they're... Because there's a big difference between the rate of growth decreasing and prices actually going negative negative growth so are you saying that then you think that the rate of growth is not sustainable or do you think that actually there might be a correction in the prices and, and there'd be some negative um growth on the horizon for for house prices well there will be a correction at some point because there always is so at some point that'll that'll happen do i think that'll happen in kind of the next year my gut feel probably tells me I don't think so I think the growth will just tail off and we'll end up kind of flatlining a little bit um, and the biggest it's, it's kind of interesting sort of you know pulling it back onto the topic of, of inflation because historically you'd, you'd say inflation is good for house prices because obviously house prices go up which is a, a good consequence of it but the second kind of drag that's particular to property and not always relevant to all parts of the economy is affordability yeah so so much of the property market is underpinned by people's ability to borrow money on mortgages. And the banks can only have 15% of their books in mortgages that are more than four and a half times someone's income. We've got, if you kind of think about the wider market, yes, some people have incomes going up, they always do, but actually the, the risk probably is around wage, wage stagnation coming back in, which we've had yeah. for a long time anyway, and people yeah. kind of tolerate it for a long time. Um, risk of unemployment going up you sort of look at incomes and think actually are incomes going to um, keep pace with inflation I would I would say probably not in the short term anyway and mm. um, so you'll reach a point where I think um, mortgage affordability is going to hold back property prices naturally anyway without any kind of other intervention coming in and I think that's a fantastic point you just kind of I, I want to go back to it because I think it's really important and I don't think a lot of people understand know it but you mentioned 15% um, is the amount of loans that banks can give that are over the four and a half um, multiple of earnings. Is that, um, obviously that's for homeowners. Is there anything similar for buy to let then? Because you see a lot of different loan to value. We've got rental stress tests, things like that. Is there any rules for um, those banks in, in lending on, um, on higher multiples or higher rent? rent stress tests no so there's two things that hold um buy to let lending in check so the first is if you do anything above 85 percent loan to value there's depending on 
it gets a bit complicated and a bit technical, but depending on the version of the regulations that you sort of fall under, the cost of capital gets quite punitive. Um, mm. It makes mortgages difficult to do from an economics point of view. So I don't think we'll see many kind of, you know, high loan to value buy to let products um, entering the market. We sort of got a natural cap where sort of 75% is the normal, but yeah. there might be a few quirky products that get to 80, 85. And um, that's probably where it stays. Then the, the kind of second thing that really dictates most of the buy to let market now is ever since um, 2017, we've had the affordability regulations that have come in that mean that the sort of assessment of rental income versus the amount of debt that you can afford um, is fairly strict actually. Um, and so that means that unless rents grow rapidly, it's difficult to borrow more on a buy to let, whatever happens with capital values. And, um, and obviously in places where you've got higher value properties like London, um, you might find that actually you can't reach, you can't get close to that 75% loan to value because those rental stress tests don't allow for it. Um, so what you're saying, what my, I guess what my question is, is, is places like London, do you see some relaxing of the rental stress tests? to allow those loan to values to creep up to maybe 70, 75%, whereas maybe the last couple of years they haven't been able to? On the whole, no, would be my kind of gut on that. Um, there will always be some private banks out there happy to do kind of stretch leverage to particularly high net worth individuals. That's always going to be out there. There is a, a phenomenon called top slicing, which went away during COVID, but it's kind of come back now, which is where... You might have a buy-to-let property over here in London, you know, with a really low kind of two and a half, three percent yield. But you personally have got a really strong income. You're in a great position. Basically, what the logic of that is will lend you a bit more on your buy-to-let because I think that if your rent's a bit short, you you can make it up with salary. So you're kind of good for it overall. So the the assessment of that is you as a person and your affordability as a person rather than the the rent and the property in isolation. But that's fairly niche and. Um, most lenders still don't offer it. And again, you're kind of the strength of your personal income needs to be super strong to kind of yeah. get in the door with that stuff. So it doesn't help most people really. And particularly it doesn't help most full-time property people where it's not always as easy for them to demonstrate what their personal income looks like because so much of it is in tied up in other things they're doing. Sure. In so it has an impact, but I don't think it helps the wider market. The, the biggest thing that helps Southeast and London buy to let at the moment is interest rates. Mm-hmm. Because with the way that the affordability rules work, if you're, borrowing in a limited company the rent needs to cover your mortgage costs by 125 percent and normally the minimum mortgage cost that a lender would be allowed to apply is five and a half percent which is obviously quite a bit higher than um, what actual mortgage costs are now however there's some room in the regulation that if you take a five-year fixed rate that 125 percent coverage is based on the rate itself not on the five and a half percent stress rate so, you know, in a market where you might be able to get a limited company buy to let mortgage for three, three and a half percent, that makes a really, really big difference to how much you can borrow. So if rates rise and if mortgage products rise, that does have a direct correlation with how much you can borrow on low, low yielding investment property. Very interesting. So really what you're saying is despite what we said at the beginning or what you said at the beginning, sorry, about kind of all the fixed and operational costs of, that lenders have that aren't to do with base rate if there is a base rate rise you could argue that actually london buy to let investors will be more more negatively affected um or those higher leverage london buy to let investors would be more negatively affected than maybe other parts of of the country yeah absolutely i mean 
the rule of thumb and here's a rule of thumb that i always have in my mind is if you, if you want to get to 75 percent on a on a limited company buy to let you need about four percent yield yeah it's actually not that high so for most parts of the country that's perfectly sufficient but in london it, it can be tricky particularly in central london which is why i think you've seen so many investors pivot to, to hmos and things in london to try and make the numbers work yeah interesting really interesting point um you talked kind of about you touched on a, we're not even on our second question these are all just follow-up questions to what you said at the beginning <laughs> so clearly I'm, I'm i'm interested um you mentioned kind of affordability being one of the big big drivers there and you talked about wage stagflation um and obviously rents are based on affordability because people have sort of in, in say higher value areas it will normally there'll normally be a cap of around 55 percent of their of their wage can go on on rents and uh, in in lower value areas it averages out at about 30 percent now where we've got uh, where we've got a disparity normally between i'm going to use london again as an example between london and the rest of the country normally there's a much bigger disparity in the prices whereas that is shrinking and i think actually it's at the lowest it's ever been the difference between other areas in london in terms of price is the lowest it's ever been now that's not necessarily because london has dropped this year although it hasn't done particularly well over the last five years but that's more because these other areas are starting to grow really rapidly now we know that the cap is higher as a percentage of wage i.e 50 55 percent rather than 30 percent because everything else that you buy as a human all your staples of living such as transport food um internet and, and, and what have you wherever you are in the country doesn't make a massive difference to those costs um whereas obviously living is a, is a much bigger difference which is why if you spent 50 percent of your wage on housing your wage is a bit higher in london or traditionally or normally it is and therefore you still have a decent amount to spend on all the other staples of living now do you think because of the price rises in other parts of the country that actually the affordability that's typically been around 30 percent renters of their wage can now start to creep up and we might and, and that can be pushing maybe 35 40 percent in areas where it's all normally been 30. yeah that's a, that's a really good question um I think the dynamic that plays out at the moment is that because interest rates are so low, the cost of having a mortgage on the same property as renting it is just so much lower that it does drive people to, to, to want to buy. Mm. And then when you combine that with availability of, you know, 95% mortgages now, government backed for first time buyers, and then also lower asset prices outside of London. So the barrier of entry to getting that 5% deposit is that much lower. You can kind of see why, um, you know that part of the market is bit is before first time buyers have performed well pretty much all about the pandemic to be honest and i think will continue to perform well now that the 95 percent lending is back as well you can sort of see where the where the kind of narrative is going and i think a lot of the political will is around getting these people on the housing ladder so that sort of leads me to say well, well what then about the landlord so there's always going to be some people who um are younger perhaps and starting out and they need to rent so that makes sense there's going to be some people who choose to rent i think because they just don't buy into the whole home ownership thing and every time they get their five percent deposit together they think actually it's better to go on holiday or whatever yep. um, 
And, but then my kind of gut is that a lot of people who maybe are a little bit more financially switched on or financially focused in better jobs, so perhaps the best tenants, they're the ones that leave the market first um, yeah. to buy. So you're potentially left with a kind of pool of renters that are a little bit less stable. So the easier it is for them to leave the rental market and become um, homeowners, kind of the quality of that rental market gets a little bit trickier to pin down. I think you'll be a bit more selective and a bit more careful about which parts of that market that you operate in. And then I sort of look at traditionally um, people who rent, as I say, younger or lower income, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of those jobs might be in the sectors that are most impacted by the pandemic. So leisure, hospitality, um, tourism, that kind of stuff. And that's probably got the least job security at the moment out of all of the various sectors in the, in the economy. So you kind of got this combination of, you know, the renters that are doing really well, saves a bit of money, got good jobs, kept their jobs, are in a good position, great position to buy, all things considered now. Um, and, and those that are left behind potentially have less financial security and less job security. And, um, I think it, it could be a tricky time for some landlords, particularly landlords who are focused on the kind of bottom end of the market. Um, that's an interesting point about kind of the job security of some of those. Because I was thinking the other day, um, we had a few tenants that um, the managing agent was kind of coming back to us on. And there was a couple who were delivery drivers, like this uh, sort of Amazon delivery driver type thing. And, uh, and there are a few others in the ledger industry. And my initial thought was actually the leisure industry and service industry is going to be stronger over the next couple of years than the deliveries because where everyone's been in their homes the last year and those deliveries have just gone through the roof, actually now they're starting to get back out and back out into the leisure. I mean, this is a massive assumption that things remain open. Um, but if that's the case, then you'd be thinking that actually there's more job opportunities in leisure and there could potentially be less demand for the deliveries and home delivery services than that there has been over the past year, which could indicate actually a shift of people going from the deliveries back into those service industries and, and leisure industries. I mean, every day I read the news and it's things like, um, oh, McDonald's are now offering bonuses to people if they recommend someone to come because they're struggling to find employees and restaurants are struggling to find staff because they're suddenly, they've, it's like the tap's been switched back on and now the demand is shooting up. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there, but I totally agree. It is the lower end of that market and, and, and those lower value jobs maybe that are are risky for, for landlords. And it's interesting that over the past couple of years, there's been a shift in terms of buy to let being seen as stable income and actually, we're seeing the stability, the stable tenants of that income are the ones, like you said, leaving the market first, which is making an asset class that's meant to resemble long term stable income is actually, when you look down to its core, sometimes is not that stable. So I think I think that's a very good point. It's interesting. I wouldn't want to be too downbeat on buy to let because I think if you compare it to other things that you can invest your money in, it still is um, sure. it still is a long term stable investment. And as much as an individual's job security might be challenging right now, there's lots of those individuals out there. So you might have to deal with more voids. You might have more management. You might have more headaches. But ultimately, you've still got a viable um, investment that actually, whilst you're dealing with all those challenges, is benefiting from the wider capital growth of the best tenant 
tenants leaving the market and driving the capital values by creating more transactional activity in terms of sales. It's not all bad. It's definitely not all bad. But it's not a it's not a kind of um, aloof. I buy a property and I give it to an agent, and now I'm a millionaire. It's absolutely not that. But if you attack it with professionalism and you know you attack it like a business, then it's still a, a great sector to be in. But um, yeah, I mean, really interesting point, Rod, on the the kind of um, hospitality and leisure versus the delivery driver thing. So I think I think you're right. I mean, the sectors that fall the hardest, the ones that will bounce back the quickest. But the, the sort of nagging doubt I still have in my mind is not so much about whether we stay open or not. I feel, you know, maybe naively, but relatively confident in that now. Um, it's more just about, we don't know how many of those businesses were reliant on furlough and other forms of state aid. And when they're able to open again, can they actually trade at 50% capacity for three months or six months or however long that's required or is it in that window where the state aid pulls away and you're allowed to open but you can't fire an all gun cylinder that actually we see some of those businesses fold and the ones that are able to kind of make it through that period and get back up towards a normal capacity probably are in a good stead to benefit from um, a really good market for the end of this year and going into next year yeah and to, and to pick up more market share if they can weather the storm yeah ab- absolutely um, and I think you you made one point there that I think is so sort of valuable and, and people need to remember this is that just when you said buy to let is not all bad and you compare it to what else, what other opportunities are out there now rather than comparing it to, I don't know, what buy to let was like 10 years ago. And that, I think that's a mistake a lot of people do. They compare sort of investment opportunities that are available now to investment opportunities they had in a different economic environment or a different environment in general or even they'll compare it to other people's opportunities and and they might not be available to them and i think that's really important to remember because if you do that sometimes or quite often you can price yourself out of what actually is a, a decent opportunity um fantastic right we've got got through loads there um so my next question to you is, who is at risk if rates do go up? We mentioned kind of London landlords maybe. Um, and what does this mean for developers borrowing versus kind of landlords? Um, and what happens if you've got developers in the middle of a scheme that maybe uh, are using development finance? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think development finance is an interesting one because it's very difficult to actually compare two loan products out there um, to each other on the market. It's not uh, with a mortgage, particularly a regulated mortgage, where there's very strict rules around what those loan offers look like and what key facts are are disclosed up front. It's quite easy to compare products, um, but with development finance, it's not. It's a more... Uh, it's a more nebulous world actually um, and it's definitely harder for developers but I mean the first thing that I would have on my mind in this sort of market but any market actually is whether or not the developer's loan is committed or uncommitted so a committed loan means that unless you go into default so you breach your covenant so you go over your LTV cap or you you know you don't do the build or something like that or you build it um, outside of planning or something like this and the money's there so you know that you can draw that money down to fund the build to the end um, traditionally, if you kind of go back 10 years, that they were all development facilities were like that. Now, I would say that's in the minority. Most development finance facilities are what's called uncommitted. 
And what's driven the uncommitted trend initially was actually to do with the banks. So um, I mentioned earlier, but the, the amount of capital a bank needs to hold on its book for a development loan is really quite punitive, which is why a lot of the high street banks are not interested in that market. Mm. Um, but there are some ways you can reduce that. And one of the ways you can reduce that is by offering an uncommitted development facility, which is basically like an overdraft. So what it is, it's saying, so well, here's, the, here's your loan offer. Here's what we'll lend you. Here's what you can draw down to fund the build. But this, by the way, is repayable on demand if we need it back. Now, um, it, that market works on trust in the, the banks, you know, particularly the challenger banks that most commonly use that sort of contract and that sort of loan offer. Um, they haven't behaved like that. They have funded schemes through to completion. They, you know, they have used it um, you know, for their own benefit, but ultimately still delivered and stood by those developers. But there is always that kind of nagging risk that um, if there was trouble in the market or there was some turbulence, it's kind of a lever that a bank would have to pull um, with that sort of, of loan offer document. And that, you know, you, we've seen some of the some of the sort of behaviour of RBS and others in 2008, and that sort of plays on some people's minds and doesn't well, play on other people's minds. Yeah, I, I think I think I was about to say that there's huge reputational risk there, isn't it? Because RBS, I mean, I know a lot of developers who were caught by that and will never ever use RBS again. Um, and I mean, still, I don't know, what, what are we, 12, 12 or 13 years since that point. So I think there is massive reputational risk for some of those lenders to be doing that and to pull, to pull products sort of halfway through builds and to leave people in the lurch would mean that there has to be a, a really, really good reason for doing so because they are risking more than just the um the profit of that of that loan at that point i think there's future damage to uh to the brand that they have as well absolutely and there's some other kind of smaller challenger banks that um continue supporting developers through the last credit crunch and i think they've benefited enormously from the positive brand absolutely that for them. so um the bank you know the banks want to lend the banks want to put loans out to market get loans paid back and make a profit you know they're not here to kind of play games and the rest of it because they won't make any money if they don't but then you've got another kind of sector of finance that's propped up with kind of crowdfunding and peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, and ten, they tend to be uncommitted. Um, each of those businesses is very different in its level of scale and sophistication. But I would, if I was a developer, want to be very certain that those businesses actually have the capital for the drawdowns. But I think there's an obvious temptation in that market to um, raise the money you need from the platform when you need it. But what if the market changes and it's not as easy to raise that capital through the platform later on when you need it for drawdowns and things like that? So that's an obvious risk to me. And if I, if I sort of look back at um, the last sort of two or three years, there's been sort of one fairly notable lender failure, if you like, more traditional lender failure. But there's been, you know, four or five crowdfunders or peer-to-peer -peer platforms that have um, that have gone wrong and gone bust and are now, yeah. now in liquidation with deals being worked through. So that feels like an obvious thing that I would be thinking about if I was a developer and, um, you know, certainty of the funding and what that looks like and who I'm taking the money from and where it comes from rather than just what's the rate and, you know, what's the terms. And um, then the kind of the, the second thing um, is, is my rate fixed or not? So you could have a development finance loan which is floating above something. So it could be floating above LIBOR, could be floating above base rate. Now, clearly, if, if base goes up, then LIBOR tends to follow. So that means that your interest rate and the cost of your finance will go up over the project term. 
Now, again, if you think about that in real terms, we're at 0.1% say. A lot of products have a floor on anyway, where they're probably using 0.5 or something. So I'd yeah. be thinking, well, how likely is the rate to get to my floor within the loan term? And unless you're doing a very, very long project over a number of years, I think that risk is probably relatively low, but it's for each developer to make, and none of us have a crystal ball. Um, so um, they're probably the main two considerations in terms of um, rates. But I guess the other kind of looming risk for developers um, live on projects is, is back to inflation on cost of materials and what happens there, because that can't always be controlled at the outset every single time. Absolutely. And we are seeing this at the moment where kind of you might, um, you might have agreed a price and then it's been two months, two months goes past and suddenly they can't, uh, contractors can't get those, um, those materials from that supplier anymore the cost might have gone up they have to get them within a time frame otherwise the cost to that scheme goes down and you might find actually rather than waiting another month to get a 10 percent increase on the cost of it they have to get it now and pay 40 percent more um, so i think that that's a huge huge risk uh, for developers at the moment definitely it's, it's a cash flow consideration as well, because if you do have to buy all that material um, a month early, with the way that development finance works is you can only draw down on it once it's installed in the property. Yeah. So if you've got loads of materials uh, sitting in a corner somewhere, they're sucking your cash flow up, um, you know, you want to kind of get them in the building, but it's obviously all about when it's ready to go in with the, with the contractor and whatnot. So yeah, there, there's um, definitely a tricky environment to navigate on that side for developers right now. Absolutely. Um, in terms of kind of, we talked about the the rates going up and, 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 and why inflation matters and things like that. But there's other things that, uh, there's other factors that cause, cause rates to go up, like uh, productivity, GDP levels, things like that as well. And uh, obviously debt levels. So the government debt at the moment is, is pretty huge because of what's happened. So they're obviously not going to be that keen to put it up because they've got they've got huge levels of debt to pay back. Bearing in mind the inflation target is 2% and we're still under that, albeit there was a big jump uh, last month as, as, as numbers came out, depending on what you think about whether those numbers are realistic in terms of how they're measured and CPI and what's in that basket and what have you. Um, what do you think the chances of rates going up over, say, the next... Um, within the next five years or the next three years. What, what do you say those chances of rates going up are? I think over that period of time, very high. Um, how much they go up by is the question. Yeah. So if you look at it in relative terms, we've had a base rate of 0.5 after the credit crunch for a very long time, probably 10 years. And we're now at 0.1. So jumping up to 0.5 is a, is a five times increase on the base rate. If you say it like that and you write it down like that, you think, crikey, wow, that's a big old jump. But in, in reality, is that going to kind of throw most people's affordability out of bed? Is that going to stop people from buying property? Is that going to stop developers from building property? No, it's, it's not going to have... Um, well, well, I suppose you say it's, it's, it's five times the amount, but... Like we said at the beginning, um, that's not going to translate into five times mortgage costs because of all the yeah. other factors you mentioned. So although it's five times the base rate going up, actually it's unlikely that uh, that will translate into uh, five times mortgage uh, mortgage fee going up. So would you? I'm guessing you, you're saying that actually 
the increase could be swallowed up by all the other factors that, that yeah I, I think some of it would get passed on because i think a lot of lenders who are competing for market share at the moment are working on really really kind of minimal margins and and any opportunity to try and claw some margin back i think the market will take that mm -hmm. but i don't think it's as simple as base rate goes up to 0.5 from 0.1 therefore everyone's mortgage goes up 0.4 i don't really see it working like that it depends on everything else happening at the time so how hungry banks are to lend um, what their other costs look like and you know what their competitors do because it's all very well you can put your rates up if you want but if no one else does then you're not going to write any loans so it, it's a more complicated conundrum than just tracking you know base goes up by x therefore my mortgage goes up by y but um i think it will be slow and steady is my kind of um gut feel on it but i, I think right some rise of some form is inevitable over the next few years yeah and I think uh, just going back to kind of what you said at the beginning about operational costs of, of lenders, um, you might be seeing kind of wages having to go up, but where you've got prices, like asset prices that are high, and obviously that means that the amount of mortgages are high, these operational costs as a percentage of the loans going out are very, very minimal. Um, so where you've got, you're lending a million pounds out rather than a hundred grand, I mean, the, the cost of your operational costs, such as your wages to staff and your office costs and things like that are going to be a much lower percentage in terms of lending on a million pounds than they would be for lending on a hundred grand. Um, and I think that can, that obviously can help. Um, what, what do, would you agree with that? Yes, I, I would, but it depends what part of the market you're in. So cost to serve of a development finance lender is you know, significantly higher than cost to serve of um, a mainstream residential mortgage department in a bank because um, the use of technology is very different. So mainstream mortgage lending is relatively simple. It's relatively tick box. You can automate, you can systemize lots of it, and you don't necessarily need huge armies of um, people on high salaries that are kind of credit experts. Yeah. Whereas if you're doing something more bespoke or more specialist, harder to automate, harder to systemize, um, and you need more experienced, qualified people that are expensive, you know, taking time to look at those loans individually. So it depends what part of the market you're in, really. But I think overall, if you kind of look at the finance market as a whole, there's an enormous amount of room for the use of technology to drive efficiencies. That you know, our, our, our sector has a, a long way to go with that. Absolutely, definitely, and we've um, we've had some people on on the broadcast that that do just that. Um, so, if you let's say the rate rises do happen, do you think uh, people might be kind of really concerned about rates going up? But do you think it's likely that if rates do rise, that will be a sign that actually things like rents have also increased? Um, what, what what do you what are your thoughts on that? I think, you know, if you think about the, the people who sit around that Bank of England committee that meet and decide what to do with rates, there, there'll be a number of factors playing on their mind. So one will be whether or not they need to use interest rates as a weapon to keep inflation in check. So that's not happened yet. It's not actually happened in a very long time, really. And probably not in my adult career has that actually been something that's happened. Um, the second thing I think that weighs on their mind, and I, I think this probably drives a lot of the thinking actually, is um, the stability of the housing market. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a report from the Bank of England I was reading only last week that Knight Frank shared that was um, analysis saying that if base rate got to 1%, 
then that reduces house prices by something between six to eight percent on average. The actual range was as low as two percent reduction in house prices to as high as eleven percent reduction, but it depended on asset and part of the country and whatnot. And I, I think that sort of analysis and that sort of thinking will weigh on policymakers' minds, um, and that they will they would tolerate calling in the housing market when they feel the right time to do that is, but they will be um, trying to stop sort of sudden shocks and, and crashes. So I think any rate rises are therefore gradual as a kind of consequence of that. And I think, it, it, so, it's sorry. a funny thing, if, it, if, we, you know, if the economy's motoring on, we're doing really well, and we've got loads of inflation, there's probably loads of other benefits that are gonna um, help the housing market. If we're doing really badly and we're flatlining along, then rates won't go up, but there's other negative consequences that'll also hurt the housing market. So I think to a certain extent, I don't fear rate rises. If we create an economic that's prospering in the environment where rate rises are, are needed, then that's probably a good thing for all of us. And I think that's a really interesting um, point. I'll, I'll try and get a link to the Knight Frank uh, report and put it in the show notes. But where you've got a 2 to 11% uh, potential kind of decrease, depending on where you are, you might get a lot of people thinking that, okay, in London, that might be... Um, traditionally uh, prime london will fall fall less as a percentage but in numerical terms quite a big chunk of money will come off the prices um it will be it will be interesting to see how that's differentiated around around the country obviously in 2008 some of the biggest uh, price decreases were around those areas um that were uh sort of maybe lower value but again, remember that wasn't about affordabilities in terms of mortgage costs. Where that that can be linked more back to kind of the eighties um, house price recession. Um, but th so then, if you're looking at it that way, then London may be at more risk because actually you might think well higher prices means more mortgages. However, there's more properties um, owned outright in London than there are anywhere else in the country. So again, that's going to factor into it. And you might actually see that because of that, people are not affected by those mortgages because they own in cash, that actually they are not forced to sell. They don't need to crystallise a loss. Um, and that means that prices don't tend to come down a bit like what happened in 2008 where people think well i don't need to crystallize this loss so i'm just going to hold it and it meant transaction levels went off a cliff um but prices kind of stayed fairly um stable um but whereas people do need to actually crystallize those losses seems to be where where actually there might be a much greater um a much greater kind of threat Yeah, I mean, historically, that sort of thinking is what um, what holds investment property in, in good good stead, because as long as you can generate enough rent to meet your mortgage commitments, then you can hold off. You don't need to crystallise that loss. You can wait until the market um, recovers, house prices go back up, and then it's just, you, know, you can kind of get back on the process of refinancing, reinvesting and whatnot. Um, in a bear market which is why most landlords had a good recession last time around well and and exactly that is that when people aren't transacting over house prices it normally means that more people uh there's more demand for rental properties as well so although prices may not go up if wages are not up um however you'd expect wages to have gone up if they have done a rate rise 
um, that can then mean that there's just more demand and you've got a better a better pick of the tenants going back to what you said um, with the with the more stable tenants and things like that and I always always say to the developers um, you know it's probably the majority of my time that I've spent more with developers and landlords and I always say the same thing you know, even if the, the plan is to sell that's fine but knowing where you would stand if you needed to refinance in terms of rental and what you could do just provides you with that, you know, wonderful plan B safety net that you can pick the time to maximize the efforts of your project. And you're not forced into selling at a time when, you know, it might just be okay or it might actually be quite bad and you don't make anything like you, you wanted to make. And um, so I think, um, you know, having options in a market like this is, is a great strength for any deal like anything isn't it it's multiple exits and, and, and that kind of yeah. thing and it sounds as though um really the risk as usual is on is on those developers who uh who only have that one exit um when when it comes to a time uh, and it comes down to timing um timing of the market everyone says don't it's time in the market not time in in the market but if you've got leverage and you've got finance costs it absolutely is about timing um, and I think I think people yeah. sometimes forget that until it's too late. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Brilliant. Well, Daryl, I think you've uh, you've given us so much to think about, and um, actually, I think it's ended up being quite positive um, in terms of thoughts about rate rises. So, if anyone was panicking about that, hopefully, uh, Daryl has given you a lot of food for thought of, uh, of some of the positives as well involved in that, and what you can be doing to mitigate some of that risk so thank you so much for coming on and uh taking time out of your busy day and uh, uh as i said i know you've got a new baby so i'm guessing you haven't had much sleep so hopefully uh hopefully we uh, we can we can give you some some rest time now perfect thanks rod pleasure great chat cheers Darryl. bye please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on the rodcast